We're looking at Matthew 13, so you may want to, if you have a Bible or there's one in the pew that you want to take or you want to just watch what's on the screen, any of those options are good. Roger Van Eck, once known as the creativity consultant for the Silicon Valley area um, when that place was hopping, and then he has a creative think tank that he has run. And he wrote a book a number of years back that I read that I, was really kind of impactful. It said, A Whack on the Side of the Head was the title with a subtitle, How to Unlock Your Mind for Innovation. And Roger Van Eck begins his book by quoting a Nobel Prize winning physician who said this, Discovery consists of looking at the same thing as everyone else. Discovery consists of looking at the same thing as everyone else and thinking something different. He gives examples. He says, Johann Gutenberg combined two previously unconnected ideas, the wine press and the coin punch, to create a new idea that transformed the world that you live in today. And the purpose of the coin punch was really to, to actually uh, press on a piece of metal an image, whether it be some kind of a, a, a face or, or some kind of a, a living creature or something, but it would press that on there. And the function of the wine press, which was then and still is today, is to force over a large area, instead of a small press here, over a whole large area, they would take the grapes and as a result of pressing a whole bunch of them, it would squeeze the juices out so that you could make whatever they were going to make from those grapes. Well, one day Gutenberg playfully was asking himself, because people were trying to figure out how to, how to you know, make uh, type and books, and so they basically were taking these plates and carving them, and then they would, they would have to do all these carvings, and, and they usually couldn't do two books of very much length at all, and, and they had to then throw those away when they weren't any good. And he was playfully asking himself, what if I took a bunch of the coin punches and put them under the force of the wine press so that there would be a bunch of little images on paper. And the resulting combination was what we know as the printing press and movable type, which was really the heartbeat underneath the whole Reformation, not only with their political changes, but it was, those, it was the written word that allowed for God's word to be put into English and then all kinds of other things as a result of that playful interaction of two different ideas. Nolan Bushnell in 1971 looked at his television and he thought, I'm not satisfied with just staring at my TV. I had this weird thought, I want to interact with it. And so soon after, he created this interactive table tennis game called Pong. Anybody ever remember playing that crude elementary game called Pong? Do you know that little crude elementary game called Pong started the video game revolution so some of you are interacting with your TV, with your kids, and exhausting yourself and pulling muscles and doing things like this with a Wii too, right? There's another man named Picasso who one day went outside his house, found an old bicycle, and he looked at this old bicycle and stared at it for a bit. And as he looked at it, he began to see something. And so he took off the seat, and then he took off the handlebars. He, he took the handlebars and the seat, and he started pulling it, put it together, and eventually welded them together to create the head of a bull, which became a famous artistic painting and, and, or, or figure, and I, I kind of go, how does that happen? Well, Van Eck makes the point that the routine and the ordinary, which we have to have in our life, there are routines and ordinary things, for, it's almost like the backbone of our life, that we need that structure to live. 
So that like when you drive to work or you drive to a certain place or you're, you're putting together um, a, a certain recipe, you just kind of know it. It's so routine, you hardly have to think about it. It just happens. He said that ordinary routine kind of thinking and processing, which is so good in our life in many ways, is the very thing that causes our minds to freeze up. And at times he calls them mental locks. And so what he's about is how do you, how do you get people to innovate, think differently, to come up with the kind of things that can change our life and our, our world around us? He says we miss something when our mind locks when our mind freezes, when we have some thoughts that continue to be the same, when it may be there's something new that's on the edge that will transform all kinds of things in our life. And so Jesus, it says in Matthew 13, one day walked out of the house, sat by the lake, and large crowds came around him. He looked at the crowds. He could see that their minds were, in a sense, locked and frozen because they were thinking in ways that had been pretty customary as they read the Old Testament. They kept thinking about this fact that this Messiah would come and this King would come. And when this King would come, He would demonstrate the reality of the kingdom and declare it to people. And then that kingdom would come in such a way that the whole world would experience this Messiah's kingdom. And he looked at these people because as you go through Matthew, you see you finally get to chapter 12 and in 11, in those areas there, and you see the responses and reactions to people, and the very re- last reaction is this reaction, where the king is rejected by the religious authorities, the people who were in rule and power in that day. And there was a question when you come to the end of chapter 12 of Matthew, where the people, and any good Jew reading it, because Matthew is written more for Jewish people, as this gospel, any good Jew reading this would be asking himself, what happens? The king has been rejected. What happens to his kingdom? What happens to his effective rule and power in this world, in this life, if the king has been rejected? So Jesus goes out and he sits by the lake and a crowd comes around him and he looks at them and he sees these frozen minds with these mental locks and he he begins to think to himself, I've got to help unlock their thought process to understand how God is at work right now before them. And so he begins by making it very clear. He says, here's something you need to know. And he tells a parable of the sower, which is really the soils. He talks about the heart and how the heart is where the kingdom grows. He needs to let them know it's not necessarily some external thing that that God was promising. That would come, but it's your heart that's most important. If the soil of the condition of your heart is good, it will produce 30, 60, and 100 times. So he's kind of whacking them on the head saying, the kingdom grows here. And then he whacks him on the head with another parable. He talks about the parable of the seed. There's good seed. And then at the night, someone plants a bunch of weeds in there and they grow up at the same time. And the question is, do we separate the good seed from the weeds? And the, and the owner says to his, to his servants, no, you wait till they come to full harvest. And his point in this parable is that not only is your soil the place where the kingdom grows, but now in this time, while you're waiting for that glory of this kingdom which will impose itself on all people you don't realize he's saying there is a time where you're called to live in this world to engage those around you in this world and then to love those within your world starting with your your husband or your wife and your children or with your significant other or with people close to you and you begin to learn how to love in that way and as that love begins to ripple itself out it also shows itself in a very in way that it's in there's integrity that it loves all the way everywhere you go And now he's got them at this point where he's talking about where the kingdom grows. He's now telling how it grows in this world. That he comes to this next point. And he gives two more parables. 
And if you look at these parables, you'll see in verse 31 through verse 33, they're very short little parables. One of a mustard seed, one of the, the yeast or leaven. He says in verse 31, he told him another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And he looked at them and he then tells them another parable. The kingdom of heaven, he says, is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And he got done. He looked out at the crowd and he saw faces like I'm seeing here going, what? what? What are you talking about? Can you help us out a little bit? Well, in both parables, what's really interesting about this is the choice of images that Jesus uses is really surprising to the people. It, it, this, Jesus was juxtaposing some ideas together in such a way that would be like a whack on the side of the head for a lot of people when, it, when they thought about the kingdom of God in the context of, 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 a, of a mustard seed and in the context of yeast. He was talking about the kingdom of God. And, and, and really, as he talked about it, it was rather unexpected. I think it probably evoked startled expressions from a lot of people using these two images. I'm sure their minds are thinking, where is he going with this bizarre imagery? But see, Jesus was trying to dislodge mindsets in order to penetrate underneath the assumptions that have locked people into an understanding, which is not necessarily helpful sometimes in seeing God work around you. That's a mouthful there. He's actually knocking the heads of people to be able to say, I want you to see how the kingdom is operating right now. What it looks like. And so we have to ask yourself, what is he jarring loose? Jesus uses two stories, and I think he uses two stories because as he gets done with the one story, he looks out and goes, "Ah, they need another story. This one needs a second emphasis. Because this is one that I think people have a real difficult time understanding even to this day. It's really interesting when you look at this parable of the mustard seed. Some scholars use this to, to point out how the, the Bible is inaccurate. It's, it's, it, you can't trust it. There's errors in it because everyone who is a horticulturalist who knows and studies this realizes the mustard seed isn't the smallest seed known to man. And so there's this sense that this, this isn't really accurate. The Bible's wrong. So people, in a sense, who I think their mind is stuck and frozen for whatever reason, they have the assumptions that I'm going to prove this is wrong. They use texts like this to kind of say, you see, you can't trust the Bible. You can't really trust the writers of the Bible. So how can you even trust that there's a God and all the others? And I just want to say that is, is really sad because you can so easily understand what Jesus is doing. If you read the NIV translation, it's very accurate. It says, though it is the smallest of your seeds... Yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree. You can tell right away he's trying to get, uh, he's trying to set up two different uh, thoughts here. And it becomes a tree so the birds of the air come and they perch in its branches. And birds of the air in the Old Testament is very common for the idea that the nations that are outside of Israel would someday come underneath the shade branching of this kingdom. So he's making it very clear that this kingdom is going to be big and vast and great and in it 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 will encompass not just the Jews but all others as well. But what's interesting here is when he uses the idea that being the smallest of your seeds, he's using some rabbinical thought that they would have some awareness of. The, the word mustard seed was basically a proverbial 
proverbially used in that culture for the sense of smallness. And in that sense, it's one of the smallest organic things that they knew that they were all aware of. He wasn't making some kind of statement that, th- that this is a scientific fact that this is the smallest of all the seeds. He was just saying in your world, it's pretty aware that when we want to talk about something organic that's small, you just look at a mustard seed. And some commentators stress the fact that what Jesus is really emphasizing in this parable is how large the kingdom would be. But you have to really ask yourself if he's trying to stress how large and great and vast and glorious the kingdom is going to be, which I think he does in one sense, he gets to that. He he used the wrong seed, really, in a sense, because if you really want to talk about that, even with Old Testament imagery, you would talk about an oak tree or a cedar. That's the one that grew huge and large. And if that's what you wanted people to see, that's what you'd talk about. But this is a garden plant. It grows to about 12 to 14 feet in height. Besides the Jews, when they began to teach about the kingdom and its greatness, that was the very problem that they had with Jesus himself, with his kingdom. If he was proclaiming or he was somehow saying he was the Messiah bringing the kingdom of God, that's what people wanted. No pious Jew in that day would doubt that the coming of the kingdom of God would be vast and glorious. What they were struggling with was this. Jesus had come with a group of 12 no-name disciples, and the following that he had behind him were a bunch of women a bunch of blind, deaf, crippled, demonized people. Now, that's not the kind of kingdom they thought would be behind the Messiah. The Messiah would have horses and and, and they would have the whole religious establishment and he would get together all the zealots in the country and the army would be vast and great and big. And, And when Jesus would come, he would impose upon all people this vast and glorious kingdom. And what he does is he says, look, I want you to understand how the kingdom comes. The kingdom doesn't come in this vast and glorious way. The kingdom often comes. If you if you want to really know how the kingdom of God works, it grows in your heart so that you can begin to live in the world around you. And as you live in the world around you, you begin to love people, and you'll find that the kingdom comes in small, inconsequential ways. And if you watch that, you'll see, if you stay in understanding and watching how God works, you'll see then it grows into that which is vast and great. And that's why as he talks about this, they're asking in their mind, where is the glory, where is the vastness? It's not about the big kingdom. It's not about that he's trying to say this is the smallest seed. Jesus is basically saying there is a a basic connection between the small beginnings taking place that you see right now and the vast and glorious kingdom that will come. In other words, though the initial appearance of the kingdom seems inconsequential, like the tiny seed which leads to a mature plant, so also the seemingly insignificant kingdom that I, the Messiah, the Son of Man, have brought and initiated will over time grow to be vast and glorious. Well, this is difficult for them to understand, and he's just probably cracking a few new thoughts into some people's heads, so he decides to change the imagery and maybe hit them on the other side of the head. He says, let's talk for a while about yeast. Let's, let's talk about what leaven's like. And, and you have to understand, when Jesus uses this for the symbol of the kingdom, this is really out of character for what that was usually used for. In the Old Testament, leaven, and even Jesus himself, would, would use leaven or yeast as something that was associated with that which is evil. 
So that when you think about it, one of its first times you talk about leaven, you think about it when the, the people of, of Jerusalem, the, the, the nation of Israel, the children of Israel are coming out of Egypt. And as they're about to come out of Egypt, before they leave, God has them clear out their house of all leaven because that leaven was a symbol of evil. And he said, you need to come to a place in your own heart where you recognize the sin, the evil in your own heart. If you don't understand that's a part of who we are when we, because of the choices and because of our sinful nature, if you don't recognize it will permeate your whole life. And so there's a sense of repentance. He says, clean out your house in a symbolic way so that when the angel of death comes, he will pass over your place, not on the basis of your goodness, not on the basis of the works, not even really on the basis of the fact you cleaned everything out, but really on the basis of the fact that you understand the simple truth that you need God. And you need His grace and His goodness because of the potential of the evil permeating your own life and your own relationships. And you come to, many of us come to a point where we mess things up, where you fall on your knees and say, God, I really need your help. And that's what he's talking about. So leaven has this sense of it being evil. And Jesus would even talk about the yeast of the Pharisees. Watch out for them. And the yeast of those of Herod. Because that kind of, you know, small little ways would begin to grow and permeate and affect everything else. But now he changes the imagery and he says, guess what? The rule of God which grows in your heart, which begins to, to move in your life where you live and where you love. He says, this rule comes in ways like yeast. It's like leaven. The only difference really between this and the other parable is that this is more of a pervasive, transforming kind of nature. So you get both of them being small and the idea that it comes in small ways and grows. One permeates and one just grows into a, a, a vast, great tree that holds the nations. So you may be wondering, why is Jesus and what is he trying to teach us through these stories? Again, Let me just reiterate, it's not how big the kingdom will be someday. That was not the purpose of it. He wasn't denying that it would be, but he's trying to dislodge that thought that it would happen like that when he came. And he was not denying it would be pervasive, but he's trying to dislodge the thought that when he came, those things would happen immediately. In both parables, the point is the same. Presently, the kingdom Jesus has brought operates quietly, persistently, and from small beginnings. What seems inconsequential is ultimately of greatest consequence. And he uses these stories to try and break through our mindsets to understand how he works in our midst. And so what is Jesus trying to jar loose in your own thoughts, in your own mind? Is it possible that 2,000 years ago what he was jarring loose then might be what he needs to jar loose today? Is it possible that we maybe have some of the same things? I think it's interesting that Jesus uses stories because stories have a way of sticking with us and, and sometimes we remember them at the right moment. Now, I have to share this because as a pastor, this is a pretty typical thing. I'll have people often come up to me and go, you know, I don't remember what you were speaking, what you even spoke about. And I'll be honest to tell you, there's people who say, oh, and, you know, what did you speak about two weeks ago? I don't know. But what they'll often say to me is, I remember when you told the story about your dog. I remember when you told the story about that guy who did, you know, and, and they'll give you stories. Well, Jesus is so wise and so wonderful that he allows for his word to be like seeds within our hearts and our minds. And so he sticks these seeds into the hearts and minds of these people. 
And as he does it, Jesus knew that soon God's purposes and ways would be really hard for them to understand as he would hang on a cross and die. He knew that these stories needed to be lodged in their heads and in our heads so that when he, the single seed, died, this kernel of his flesh was broken on a cross, they would at some point understand when this new seed of life was resurrected with all power and all authority and would show himself to 12 and then to 500 and then it would begin to permeate into the city of Jerusalem and from Jerusalem would scatter throughout the world. They needed to understand that's how God works. That's interesting. And so I just want to share with you, there are some mindsets that I think 2,000 years ago they had that we have today. And I say this for me. So this message is for me, maybe more for you than for you, because they're mindsets I carry. There's a lot of times the way I want God to work, or the way I, I'm looking for God to work, the way that I expect God to work, the way that I hope God will work is that he'll work in big ways. People want big. Right? America especially is a little bit after Big. If you're from Texas, you're really after big. People want loud a lot of times. They want in your face. And people want it now. All the things that they were looking for. So let's talk a little bit about what it means for you to want maybe something like God to work big. Because I believe that same belief is existing today. We believe it's God's at work when he shows up in a big way, right? Like God, man, God was here. God was here as big. We tend to look at God to work in mega ways, grand events and large groups and in anything that's sizable. So one of the ways God does work is big. I remember this last Christmas Eve, we've had so many people just talk about how God moved in their hearts. We were all, you know, place was packed, people singing out their hearts. And this is one of those moments, and God just showed up in a powerful way. It was kind of that undeniable presence of God. And it was so touching in my own heart and my own experiences. I know it was for others. But what happens is that God shows up in that way. If that's a gift, that's a grace of God. That's something he chooses as we seek to, with all obedience and understanding, we put ourselves in a position that he can be here. But if he doesn't show that way the next week or the next week or the next week, because I have a tendency, you have a tendency, I think we have a tendency. We like to go from big, from big to big to big to big, but God is the God of grace who at times gives us big to say, I'm still with you. But a lot of life is about the little inconsequential things that you do daily as you live in this world and you love people. And he said, that's how my kingdom comes. I feel so privileged even to stand here in this moment and to talk about this because I'm learning this. We're learning this. God comes and the Messiah comes and they want big, imposing. And Jesus comes It's a little baby. We've been kind of as elders over the last year, been just kind of, I think um, Kevin Lake and our chairman was kind of given this verse from someone who kind of gave it to him as he took the leadership of the chairman of the church here. And Isaiah 41, 18 through 19, we'll say this from time to time and we'll kind of joke around it. It says, forget the former things, do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? 
I am making a way in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. And it's interesting that, that God has to say to these people, because they were coming back, many of them were being encouraged as they were coming back from, from their days of captivity, and they were, they were coming back, some who had seen the glory of this old former temple, and some who had seen now this new one being built, which was so scrawny. So they didn't have all the gold, they didn't have all the jewels, they didn't have all the cedar and all the wood that the other temple that Solomon built had. This was not as good. So the people who saw the former things were just in tears. Oh, it's so crummy, it's so little and the ones who were new and it was fresh and their eyes were looking at it saw the little work of God they were excited about what God was doing and they knew that God was at work so that finally in Haggai God has to say to the people he says to him listen folks all of you the glory of this present house that is being built is greater than the glory of the former one that you are crying about because the present house he says is going to have greater glory and that was 400 years off can you believe the big thing of God wasn't going to happen for 400 years for 400 years we don't have this kind of patience they waited until the glory of the present house which was jesus coming into that temple would be there that's the glory far better than gold far better than good wood was the glory of the presence of god in that place and he was saying that to them god starts small a lot of times you just take two loaves and a couple of some fish and he'll do something amazing But it starts with small. God begins with a baby in a manger, born to peasant parents in a small town called Bethlehem, raised in the Hicks of Nazareth, ministering in the north woods of Galilee, bringing together 12 unschooled, B-string, Japhy kind of followers to impact the world. And we want loud God often works quietly, silently, unnoticed, and unseen. I think Jesus, a lot of times in my life, has to whack me in the head. He says, it's not in your face. It's not it's how bold and brash. and It's not all this kind of bravado. God often works behind the scenes in the hearts of those who are receptive to him. He doesn't need to be showy and loud. He doesn't need to be gifted and overwhelmingly brilliant. He doesn't need the cream of the crop. Just needs a little bit. He doesn't need the loud, blatant, and obvious, but you will often you'll see that he uses the subtle and the quiet and the understated. He loves the humble. He loves the soft. He loves the yielded. His heart breaks for the broken. And we also want things now. We like it big. We, we like it loud, and I think a lot of times we want it now. We tend to think as we look at the works of God that if we do things a few times, it should also immediately flow that God answers, right? I'm like that. We, we, we live in this microwave world with this kind of itch for the instant everything. All of us, delayed gratification is something that's not too often preached or praised. But God's a God who does delay and waits in order to do things in our hearts, in our character, to prepare things around us so that he can do the things that he's planning on doing. But we we want it now. So we reason, you know, we've been meeting Wednesdays, you know, first Wednesday of the month, and only 10 or 12 show maybe up the first time or 10 or 12 next, or sometimes we'll get 20. But, you know, you do this for a couple of months and you kind of go, is anything really happening? And it's so easy to, you know, well, let's just give up. 
We pray for three years for something and, and we pray and eventually, because nothing's happening, we come to the point where we say, oh, I guess I'm going to give up. And then Jesus looks at his disciples in Luke 18 and talks about this widow who goes before the judge and persists and persists and badgers. His point being that, God, you don't have to badger, but the thing he says before he gives the parable, I'm telling you this, that you will always pray and never give up. I want you to know your your God, the Father, is not like this unjust judge that you got to badger. Just bring your request to him and be faithful in it over and over, and there will be a time that God will answer. I'm going to share it with you because, really, Grace, you kind of asked me to share this a little bit because um, she was at, Grace, my wife, was at the women's retreat, and, and, and a number of women came up to her and were asking her questions about a story that I had told about Grace. About 15 years or so ago, Grace was diagnosed with MS down at Mayo Clinic, and we went through a whole bunch of other things, and through the years, um, numbness in her fingers, and, and was getting more problems with her leg and walking, and we went and followed this whole path of MS, and went to all, all the steps, even to the point of being on a trial drug study with MS, and, and, and I have to share with you, and I know Grace in her heart felt, we felt um, early on, this isn't what it is, but God, we're going to follow you and, and, and not deny these kind of things, but walk in, in your presence and your spirit and hold on to what we believe is true and pray. And lots of people prayed with us. And there were times where, yeah, there's doubt and you wonder. And then all of a sudden, as we go through this study, at one point about a year and a half ago, the MS doctor kind of has both of us sitting there and he's showing the, the, the um, MRI and he shows that on the, in, in the spinal column, there's a, a stenosis. It's very tight. There's There's no... Uh, fluid there that this the spine is right on the spinal cord and uh, that's not a good thing there's white spots which are often evidence of MS with all the symptoms etc and and we kind of asked at that point well could those symptoms be from the damage of the spinal cord and maybe not MS and he said well I could be why don't you go find a you know we went and found someone who could talk about surgery about possibly opening that up and went through that route and we did that and um, when just about a year or so ago Grace with the foot drop, could only walk about a mile, and it was really difficult. Um, January, I walked with Grace, and she was walking four miles. And I was the one who was the difficult one. But anyway, um, and I say that because it's really easy to, to, to want to just give up. And it doesn't mean it's going to be answered the way that we think. But if God's speaking in our hearts, he's telling you to, to move into this. Go in all faith. Trust him and walk in it. And just be faithful. Here's what Jesus is trying to get across to these people. We always want the external world around us to change. I'm the first one to admit this. We want big. We want loud. We want it now. And God says his kingdom comes in hearts that are willing to live and engage this world in a way where they love in very inconsequential, very understated, and, and very much faithful over time, persistence. That's how God works. And when that happens, he begins to permeate things. His spirit comes. And I just ask you to think, are you missing God and his work? Because you're looking for big and loud and now. Well, one of the things that's kind of cool is we have um, one of our missionaries here this morning, Meredith. Amy McAllister, if you are, where are you, Meredith? 
And um, I've asked if she would share, because Meredith is one of our missionaries in Peru, serving in a place called Tarma, which is about seven hours by bus, all the way over to um, um, away from Lima. So you've got to go seven hours to get to this little more remote kind of area. And what's been so cool is that everything that's happening there is big and loud and now. It's all just, it's just this amazing thing. No. Why don't you just share a little bit about what God's doing? Yeah. Um, Tarma is a city in the mountains. It's uh, seven hours over the Andes, back down. It's a valley, 60,000 people. And I have been living in Lima for about eight or nine years, nine million so it was quite a change, but uh, big to small, basically, would be the motif there. Um, we, as a free church in Peru, have been working for about 30 years, the, the organization. And we have six churches in Lima, but we never really left Lima. Our Peruvian churches were sending teams to other places around Peru. It was kind of like, you know, just kind of hit or miss, you know. We realized we needed to establish something. This has been a process of about 10 years coming to figure out we need to choose a place. Okay, we need to focus on that place. We need to send all our churches there. Okay, now we need to, we need to send a team there. Well, who's going to go? Because nobody wants to leave Lima. That's where you want to live because that's where everything is. Going back to small town Peru is kind of going backwards, you know. So, um, but we're praying, you know, Lord, if you want us to do this. And the Lord raised up a team. He raised up Elsa and Julio to go, two other single teammates. And he brought Bethany Kerr, who's in the edge of that picture, from um, Nebraska to join our team for a year and a half. I never thought I was going to live in small-town Peru, and the pastors asked me to go to be in charge of the team. So um, it was a huge step of faith for all of us. But, yeah, it's, it's small. I'm kind of out of the loop. Uh, I kind of keep touching with friends on Facebook who are in Lima. And um, it's, it's changed a lot. But it's exciting because our church had never sent anyone anywhere. And these six little churches are supporting our two workers who are in Tarma, and at the same time, when all this was happening, the earthquake hit in 2007, and we all felt led to go to Chincha and to help a work there. We worked with Food for the Hungry. We're, actually, Kevin's been there, too. So we're thinking, oh, well, we want the Zavalas to go to Tarma, but maybe they should go to Chincha, and God raised up Julio and Elsa. So all of a sudden, we have four missionaries, and all of a sudden, these churches who struggle to support their own pastor are committing to support these missionaries monthly. And so that's our vision. We want missions to be reproducible. We don't want them to be supported by churches in the state. They're not U.S. missionaries. They're Peruvian missionaries. And so it's exciting to see that even though it's very small, we've all been witnesses to something amazing that God has done in our particular church family. As far as loud, there's just uh, four of us, so we don't make a whole lot of noise. (laughs) But when teams come, we've had three teams come this year from Texas and Wisconsin, and that brings a lot of attention because although there's a lot of foreigners and tourists in Lima, there's not that many in Tarma, and most of the foreign missionaries are Mormons. So we went on a paseo here with a, a group of um, kids from Lima. Anyway, okay, loud. So we're, um, these teams come, and they really open up the doors. We've been into all the public schools, private schools. We've done business seminars for adults, invited municipality leaders, local doctors and lawyers, and and everything, and it's helped us to meet adults. We're trying to plant churches in Tarma. We'd like to have a home church model that um, really spreads out throughout the area as opposed to a traditional church model. From what we're seeing, we think this would be the best way to go about it. But you need adults and you need committed people. It's easy to get youth. It's easy to get kids involved in stuff, but it's harder to reach those adults. 
So um, having uh, those teams come, adults reach out, has allowed us to at least have a presence in the community. Uh, you know, poco a poco. Slow, yeah, things really do take time. Even the, our Peruvian pastors have said to us, you know, you know, five years would be good to give this a shot. You know, we should really be there at least that long before we would give anything up or stop doing what we're doing. It takes so much time to get to know people. You know, you think about it. How long does it take you to meet someone before you get invited to their home? That takes a while, right? And then once you get invited to their home, a lot of people in Tarma don't like to read. They know how to read, but they just rather watch TV, you know, or, you know, pirated DVDs, which are readily available. So to get them to want to read and to like to read and then to see the Bible as something that's not just a decoration in their home or a good luck charm, that there's things in there that they can understand. Maybe get them a newer version because King James is kind of hard to understand and um, all that takes time. It takes a lot more time sometimes than we expect. But the Lord's in it and he's at work and we've had 38 Bible studies in the last year and a half in six homes, six businesses and nine homes. Everybody pretty much knows who we are in town and... Um, well, hopefully that's a good thing. So we're just going to see. We're praying. We're praying this year that we'll be able to start a pilot small, a pilot cell group, a pilot home church. Um, we need at least one or two male leaders to make that possible. So that's what we're doing. And at the end of the day, you kind of ask, why is it like this? Why did God set it up this way? And I think it has to do with humility. <laughs> to just, again, be dependent on the Lord and realize that we can't do this. I am not in control. He has the plans, the keys, and all the expertise, and we need to be just synced up and totally dependent on him. Perseverance. Uh, I just think so many times we think, oh, I have to do something big for God. And he's just asking us to be faithful every day in the little things, you know? And a lot of people think, wow, I got to improve in the mountains. That's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, some days it is. Some days it's really not, <laughs> you know? And I have to be faithful in really little things, too. So... That's kind of what it's all about. But just so grateful for being in partnership with, with you all. Thank you for your support for these last, I think it's been at least 10 years. So we couldn't do this, what we're doing. I couldn't do it without churches like you. And I'm just so grateful for um, your partnership in the gospel and for the Lord's faithfulness in all of this. I just really appreciate you sharing. And I think one of the things I just want us to kind of camp on as we kind of close is you may be before one of those things where you're kind of waiting for the breakthrough and for the big. And again, they're not bad. These are not bad things. Um, or you're waiting for it to, to happen now. And what those things do is just draw us back to being fully dependent on God. And so um, if you're in that place, I want to pray for you. And I want to pray for Meredith and for the work God has for us. So let's pray. Father, I, I thank you for um, this word from Meredith, and I ask God as she travels and talks with people that she see, that are supporting her in the states, that you would encourage her heart, and that God, you would do the things, some of those things that she's putting her um, her heart into, uh, that we would see these uh, small home churches, cell groups start up. We ask that you would be in that God as they build relationships over time. And Father, I pray for people this morning who are here and. Uh, they've been praying for years um, that you would encourage your heart. I pray for people here who um, are beginning to involve themselves with people at work or around them, that uh, you're building relationships. Give them the ability, Father, to just do those unnoticeable, loving, kind, good acts day in and day out. Help us to be the kind of people that were like you, Jesus. You celebrated the big, yet you were all about every day just being there, showing up putting your hand up saying I'm here for you Father I'm here God may we be that kind of people Lord we pray in Jesus name